All right, so um, we are continuing the series through Nehemiah, and we're in chapter 2, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to look at that chapter this morning. We started the series last week. The series is titled Reformation and Rebuilding, and Nehemiah had a great work to do, and we certainly also have a great work to do ahead of us as well, so He had reformation and rebuilding of the city of God in mind, and we are also called to reform and rebuild um, the church of God in our generation. So think for a minute about, before we dive into chapter two, the work of God in our lives. Any of you come in this morning, any of you feel oftentimes or recently Like, is God really at work? Is God really at work in my life? Is God really at work in our church? Is God really at work in kind of the world that we see? I think we can be frustrated. We can feel like we're spinning our wheels. We can feel like we're just kind of getting nowhere fast. It can seem like it's one step forward, two back. It can be pretty discouraging. We've also failed a lot. So I appreciate some of the songs that we were singing, speaking honestly where we need to confess our sins, but also reminding ourselves of the work of God because God is at work. I love this poem by William Cooper. It's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So I imagine you may have deeply resonated with the song, How Deeply We Need a Savior, How Deeply We Need the Work of God in Our Lives, the Work of Christ on the Cross, Accomplished it is finished, but the ongoing application of that work, the ongoing work in our lives. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us. But brothers and sisters, we can be encouraged. There is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. He's at work. There is hope. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He's a professional. Our God and Savior is a professional. He is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So when the race is complete, still our lips will repeat, certainly not I, but through Christ. We're going to make it. Brothers and sisters, you might be like on fumes right now, but we're going to make it If you're in Christ, we're going to make it. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. So be encouraged this morning, no matter what it looks like, because, you know, oftentimes there's just, it's just clouds, right? It just, I, I can't see, or fog like last night. What's going on? What are you doing? Are you at work? Yes, he's at work. We looked at Romans 8 before we started Nehemiah. That's the God who is at work. He knows the end from the beginning. 
from him and through him and to him are all things. And so as we get to the work in Nehemiah of reformation and rebuilding, we can be confident that he is at work in us to will and to work for his good purposes. So let's trust him together. All right? So Nehemiah chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there if you're not there already. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find our passage on page 398 in the Pew Bible. So I'm going to read that chapter and then pray briefly again and then we'll dive in. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that, I, that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned." And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim. In Jerusalem. This is God's word. So there's an outline um, that'll be on the screen here. Uh, maybe you grabbed the outline on the way in. You could follow along that way. There's, it's on, online if you want to pull it up that way as well. So first off, let's look at verses 1 to 8. Point number 1, Proverbs 21, 1 illustrated. So Proverbs 21, 1 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So the hearts of kings, every king, the Lord is the one who raises up kings and puts them down. And the heart of the king is in God's hands, and he can direct it wherever he wants it to go. 
And we see that illustrated here in Nehemiah 2. So we're obviously in Persia. The people of God had been exiled um, by Babylon. Babylon had come in. Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar come in and crushed Jerusalem and taken away all these people to exile like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then under Cyrus, there was some return. And the, the temple was rebuilt. You had Zerubbabel, the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel, and then Ezra. Okay? Ezra was a co- contemporary of Nehemiah. Um, if you read the end, the latter half of the book of Ezra, the temple is rebuilt. And now um, Nehemiah comes on the scene about 12 or 13 years later. And he is the cupbearer to the most powerful man in the world at the time, the king of Persia. Okay, so in chapter 1, he hears about the state of things in Jerusalem because um, some kinsmen of his came and told him that things were not in good shape. If you look back in chapter 1, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So this just um, broke Nehemiah's heart. And he's fasting and praying. And we find out that this fasting and prayer goes on for four months. Okay, so in chapter 1, verse 1, it's the month of Kislev in the 20th year of, of uh, Artaxerxes. Well, chapter 2, verse 1, it's the month of Nisan. So that's four months between those two time stamps. Okay? So he's been fasting and praying about this for a while. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, again, he's the cupbearer, so I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. It is not good to be sad or depressed in a Persian king's presence. So there's some, um, uh, some commentators talk about the fact that it was likely that at least it was an unwritten rule, if not an explicit policy, that subjects were to be always happy in the presence of the king because that reflected on his rule, right? So unhappy subjects reflected poorly on the rule of the king. So this sadness was dangerous, Like, displaying your sadness is dangerous, especially because the reason that Nehemiah was sad is due, most likely, to Artaxerxes' decree some years previous. Do you remember this? We look back at Ezra chapter 4. So flip back in the previous book. And Ezra chapter 4, things had been going along. The temple was beginning to be rebuilt. And, you know, Ezra wanted to get things rolling here, but then there was opposition. And a letter was written to King Artaxerxes. And they, you know, said, oh, if you let this this city be rebuilt, this is a city that has been rebellious in the past, and they're going to do it again. So Artaxerxes shut it down and gave these people the opportunity to just come and by force shut things down. Look at verse 23 of Ezra 4. Then when the copy of Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. So it's most likely that this, you know, things are in ruins, the wall is in ruins, gates burned by fire is a result of that decree. So why are you sad, Nehemiah? Um, it's your fault. <laughs> so this is doubly dangerous, right? Proverbs sixteen fourteen says, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Verse 2, Seeing you're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Oh, maybe Artaxerxes has some humanity, some humaneness to notice this. But you can see, how does Nehemiah respond? He was very much afraid. But he had prayed. You remember at the end of chapter 1? He had prayed, O Lord, I know how you've worked in the past. I know your covenant faithfulness. Now, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Nehemiah speaking, praying for himself. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
So, he had prayed, now he's going to act. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? It's interesting here. He doesn't mention Jerusalem. He makes a personal appeal. Sounds a lot like Esther. The way that Esther appealed to the king, Xerxes, which is Artaxerxes' dad, okay? When she appealed on behalf of the people of God. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? (laughs) In other words, get to the point. So what does Nehemiah do? He throws an arrow prayer. He shoots an arrow prayer to heaven quickly. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I mean, it's just, it's going to go maybe well or really bad quick. It's going to get, you know, go sideways quickly here. So Nehemiah, just stop here for a second. He's he's shooting this arrow, spontaneous prayer. So here's this man of action. We're going to see him just acting and getting it done and getting after it throughout this book. And oftentimes those people are not the prayerful people. But here Nehemiah spends four months in fasting and prayer before he acts. And even when he acts, he's just like depending on God because he knows that it ultimately does depend on God. So his example is so helpful for us here. Prolonged prayer in preparation, but also spontaneous in the moment, desperation in the midst of the opportunity. So may the Lord use Nehemiah to provoke us to both kinds of prayer in reformation and rebuilding, the work that he calls us to do. And I mentioned last week, we're going to spend a season of time in fasting and prayer. Um, Some leaders, there's going to be an email go out this week to the leaders to start that. And then in December, we're going to ask the body to join us in that fasting and prayer time. So may the default of our hearts as well be, oh God, (laughs) help. Like, where does your mind go when it's in neutral or in park, as it were? Is it, do do you recognize how needy you are? Do we realize how needy we are? Where I need you every hour. I can't do this without you. I don't want to do this without you. I don't want to do this in my own strength. You know, like John 15, 5, the vine and the branches. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So may that be our heart, our practice as well, both the planned and prolonged times in prayer, but also the arrow prayers, boom, shooting them up whenever we have need. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favor in your sight, I am requesting, because he said, what are you requesting? That you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when you return? So we don't hear Nehemiah's answer, but it's interesting. Like, what might you think? Oh, a few months or... In, in Nehemiah 5.14, the implication is he was gone for 12 years. Or at least he was regularly engaged there for 12 years. So this was not like a commute to Middletown. This was like eight to 900 miles away. So you can imagine he's not going to be going back and forth every other week. So again, we don't know exactly how long he stayed He was engaged for 12 years. Did he go back and forth? Possibly, probably. But this is a serious ask, right? He's the cupbearer. He's a trusted right-hand man. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river. He was wise enough to know that he was going to maybe meet some opposition. And he wanted the official backing of the king, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, probably the forest of Lebanon, right? In the Bible, the forests of Lebanon were known for their great cedars, and so much was built because of the forests of Lebanon. 
that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. So it's a gutsy step of faith here. Nehemiah knew what he was going to do. At the end of, verse, uh, end of chapter 1, he prays that God will give him success to your servant today. He had mourned the ruins, the broken condition of the city of God. He had fasted and prayed for months, but he didn't stop there. He knew the faithfulness of God in the past, the promises of God for the future of his people, and it served his faith in the present to act with gutsy faith. So we need Nehemiah's righteous response to provoke us, to prompt us, to humble us. If there's going to be reformation and rebuilding in our day, in our generation, for us to do our generation's work for the building of the kingdom, for the good of the church, then, like Nehemiah, like we talked about last week, we need the ruins, the weaknesses in the church to ruin us, the brokenness to break us so that we depend on God and in his strength do his work. Because, listen, we've neglected God and his word, right? I mean, every generation, there's weaknesses, there's room to grow, there's building that needs to be done. We haven't loved one another as we ought. We haven't sought first the kingdom and his righteousness as we ought. We seek second things first so often. Our marriages need work. Our parenting needs work. Our relationships need work. Our witness needs work. There is work to do. So Nehemiah doesn't know how it's going to go, but he can't sit idly by and do nothing. He knows that if his work is going to work, God will have to do the work. And so he prays and he fasts and then he throws up an arrow prayer and he goes for it. But he hadn't just prayed. I say that I hate that phrase sometimes. Well, we can't just just pray as if prayer is like this little thing. It is a huge part of the work, right? So let's not downplay it at all. But he didn't just pray in preparation. He also did his homework, and he planned. So prayer and preparation, planning, those are not at odds, but complementary. He prayed based on the promises of God. He planned based on the wisdom of God. And God granted him success. When the king asked him what he wanted, what he needed, what he was requesting, he had an answer because he had planned. He had thought it out. So God granted him this success. Why? Well, certainly Nehemiah was tactful. Okay? King, live forever. (laughs) May you have a long life. He didn't mention Jerusalem by name. It was Jerusalem. It was Artaxerxes' decree that led to, you know, things being in bad shape. So he was wise and tactful, yes. He had done his homework and had a plan, yes. He had prayed, yes. But this was ultimately not because he was a good employee, though it seems he was. It's not because he was so tactful, not because of his great relationship with Artaxerxes. The king granted his request because, look at verse 8, the good hand of God was upon him. The good hand of God. (laughs) I mean, what a good hand was upon him. What a powerful hand was upon him. It's that hand that moves the heart of the king like a course of water. It's a sovereign, omnipotent hand. So that's the hand that's on us as well as his people. So Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my mighty, righteous, omnipotent, victorious right hand. Okay? So don't you, like isn't that, isn't that just like make you long, like, Lord, we want your hand on us like that. Well, guess what? It is. His hand is on us. The sovereign hand of God is on his people. Not because we deserve it, but because of his mercy and his grace. He's committed himself to us in the new covenant. His hand is upon us so we can get to work. You know, Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work. If God's at work, We can work it out. 
So let's work it out. Let's get to work. Continue to work. We serve in the strength that he supplies. He is for us and not against us. Again, Romans 8 just sets this up. Or before that, we looked at Roman, or Revelation 4 and 5. The God who created all things and has redeemed people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation is the one who is our redeemer and savior and king. And so the hand that, that just owns and directs history is the one who holds our hand. He holds us by the hand. He's the one that strengthens us. So 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, speak as one who's speaking the very words or oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. So we can get to work because God has been at work and he is at work. And so we can get to work. One other interesting connection here that's worth noting in this section before we move on to the second point. It's a really interesting thing that happens in the Bible. So in verse what is it? Uh, eight. Let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber. So in other words, hey, Artaxerxes, I want you to pay for my building project. I want you to pay to rebuild the city of God. And he says, okay. Like, what's going on there? Well, this isn't the first time that God has worked to plunder the nations for his purposes. Because again, he owns it all and he can direct things however he wishes. Do you remember in Exodus 11? Actually, flip back there. This is pretty cool. You got to see this. Exodus 11. And he had already promised it to Moses when he met him at the burning bush. But, but I won't look back there as well. But Exodus 11, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, I will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And they plundered the Egyptians, right? Because if you flip ahead to chapter 12, verses 33 to 36, the Egyptians were urgent with the people. So this is after the 10th plague, the, tenth, the death of the firstborn. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks. The people of Israel also had done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. I mean, they've been slaves. How are they going to make it? They need some resources. Well, here, let me provide them for you. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Okay. Well, that was one time. And then, remember Cyrus. This is back when Zerubbabel um, got things started, rebuilding the temple. Cyrus paid for that. And Darius as well, paid for the rebuilding of the temple. And here in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 2, Artaxerxes is paying for the rebuilding of the city of God. Why am I bringing all this up? Well, in Psalm 68, you've got to track with me here. In Psalm 68, there's a rehearsal of the procession, like the procession of the people of God from Egypt to Canaan. And in Psalm 68, 17, it says, The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. What was Sinai? That's where God's presence came down on the mountain, right? And then when they got to Canaan, then they built the temple and the Lord's presence came down and dwelt with his people. So Sinai was now in the sanctuary. And they, you know, conquered the kingdoms and took the land and all of that, plundered the nations. So, again, we're getting there. We're getting to a point. 
Psalm 68 is quoted in Ephesians 4. But before we get to Ephesians 4, do you remember when Jesus said in Mark 3, 27, that if there is a strong man, you've got to tie up the strong man before you can plunder his house. Plunder his house. So Jesus came to bind Satan and his purposes to plunder his house, to set people free so that he could enrich his kingdom. Now, Psalm 68 in Ephesians 4 is quoted. Jesus is building his church, and in Ephesians 4, it says this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. So he's quoting Psalm 68, 18. The point is that Jesus actually plundered Satan's house, and now he's giving gifts to the kingdom, giving these spiritual gifts so that it will be built up. Does that make sense? So here's this early pattern that's going on in you know, in Jerusalem through Nehemiah and it carries on through with the greater Nehemiah. Jesus wins a victory. Jesus plunders the nations and it's all for the sake of building up his kingdom. So, he bound the strong man. Jesus bound the strong man. Continues to plunder his house to this day, giving gifts to the people to build the temple, which is now the living temple, living stones, the people of God. Okay, so just as Nehemiah was zealous to build the city of God, the zeal for God's house consumed Jesus, right? In fact, it consumed him in both ways. He was passionate about the kingdom, about the temple of God, and then he was consumed so that the new temple could be built. So the good hand of God was on Nehemiah, granted him success, but that did not mean that it was going to be a cakewalk from there on out. Instead, the good hand of God, yes, success, but also opposition as well. And for us, when the good hand of God is on us, that doesn't mean we won't face trouble and opposition. It means he'll guide us through it because he's never going to leave us or forsake us. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So the good hand of God was on Nehemiah to build up the city of God. The good hand of God was on his son to build up the city of God, the new people of God. And his hand is now on us to build the church and that doesn't mean we're going to not face opposition. It means we are, just like Nehemiah did. So point number two, action and opposition, verses 9 to 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, ser Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So listen, when you pray, Lord, your kingdom come, first, expect that you and me are going to be answers to that prayer. Like our action, our work is going to be a part of the answer to that prayer. So Nehemiah prayed, and now he's getting to work. So heading there, okay, the king provided protection and safe passage, you know, had the backing of the king, that's clear. But look at this. The very reason these guys are opposing him is because he had the welfare of the people of God in mind. Again, that's going to happen. Like, when you have the welfare of the people in mind, the uh, people of God in mind, the enemies of God will oppose you. They're not going to take it lying down because the evil one's not going to take it lying down probably heard of Amy Carmichael. She was missionary to India 
um, all these Indian children, girls that were used, temple prostitution, abused in temple rights, sexual rights, just sexual abuse, really, in the name of their religion. And so the village is called Donover, and that, that was then, you know, the place where she set up shop. And she rescued these little girls and gave them a whole new life. The good hand of God was on her. But there was also much opposition, precisely because she had the welfare of these children in mind. So some locals accused her of kidnapping children, even though that's what sometimes was happening to fill up these, you know, temples with children. So sometimes precisely because we're doing what God wants us to do, we are going to face opposition because they're enemies of God that hate his kingdom and the good, good work that we are called to do. So again, it shouldn't surprise us. The Pharisees were that way with Jesus, right? They opposed him precisely because of what he was doing. People undermined, sought to undermine Paul's ministry precisely because of what he was doing, and on and on. So perhaps what should trouble us most is if we're facing no opposition. Maybe we're not doing the work that we ought to be doing. Maybe we're not doing the work of building the kingdom as we ought. So again, we can prayerfully evaluate that and ask the Lord to guide us to the good work he's called us to do. So Nehemiah's request was granted by the king because the good hand of God was on him. He also faced opposition precisely because he's seeking the welfare of the people in the city. So it didn't deter him. Rather, he quietly enters Jerusalem and he started to evaluate things wisely. Point number three, wise assessment and persuasive recruitment. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. He didn't want to have some big you know, procession of, of all these animals and a bunch of pomp and circumstance and draw attention to himself. Like here, I'm coming in as the Savior. He wanted to humbly come in, wisely assess everything without drawing too much attention before he spoke. I went out by night by the valley gate. He inspected the walls that were broken down, its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And the officials down in verse 16 didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing because I hadn't told them yet. So he didn't come in like a politician, you know, with big plans that are out of touch with reality. He didn't overpromise and underdeliver. He didn't say anything until he had seen things with his own eyes and made a wise assessment. So Nehemiah is wise and measured and modest. And then he didn't point the finger at them. Look at how he addresses them in verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. He, he says, this is my trouble too. He doesn't say the trouble you are in. You got to... The trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, disgrace, shame. So he's identifying with them. This is my problem. This isn't just your problem. He is going to get his hands dirty. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, of the words that the king had spoken to me and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Which, if, if you're like Dwight and you know Hebrew really well, the word good and building echoes creation. God created and it was good. Good, good. Good. Well, God is going to recreate. He's going to remake. He's going to rebuild. And this is good work. So, actually, the response of the people here, we shouldn't just blow by this. It's just as much a sign of the hand of God as is the raising up of Nehemiah for such a time as this and directing the heart of King Artaxerxes. Listen, they had started this work before and then it got shut down. So you can imagine that some of them might be like, yeah, we've, we've done this before, and it, it just 
brought down trouble on our heads. So why are we gonna have to do this again? Why, why are we gonna try this again? No, God was at work. God was going to enable them to accomplish this work and so they had hearts to do the work. So this is God's work. It's for the good of Jerusalem. Nehemiah made that clear. It's, it wasn't his work for his glory. It was God's work for God's glory and the good of his people. And Nehemiah, as a good leader, he's not barking orders from the comfort of the luxury box seats. He stood with them, and he rallied them. He's the quarterback on the field, taking hits, putting it all on the line. You see the trouble we are in. Come, let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision. So this is how the leaders of God's people should be with the people of God. We've got to see and evaluate and plan and then act and rally people to the vision. So isn't that the vision of Ephesians 4? We talked about Ephesians 4 before with Psalm 68. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is like 1 Peter 5. So don't lord it over the flock, but be examples to the flock. That's what we should be as elders. Not lording it over, just barking orders, but examples doing the work alongside. So there's a beautiful combination here. It's the way it's supposed to be. Not barking orders from the comforts of the den, but also not trying to do all the work alone. You know, in some churches it can be like, you know, that's why we hired you. Or you do the work. Leave it to the professionals, you know? No. It's, yes, there are leaders, and that's important and needed, but those leaders should also be examples. And those leaders should equip, Ephesians 4. We're all in full-time ministry. We're all in full-time ministry. We're, we're all in full-time ministry, right? Yeah, like, do you know that you're in Newcastle County or whatever county you live in by God's appointment in your generation to do God's work? You're part of this church to do God's work. You're involved in those relational spheres to do God's work for such a time as this? Yes, absolutely. So, Coming to church, being involved, we should be equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. So pray for us that we'll be good equippers and examples, and we'll pray for you that you will do the work of the ministry. Nobody's sitting on the sidelines. Nobody's sitting in the, in the you know, recliner, easy chair. And listen, it doesn't matter how old you are, too. You never pass there's never like an expiration date for usefulness. We've all got gifts and we can utilize them, even if it seems small. We need prayer warriors too. So everybody, again, this is just an opportunity. Like it, it's not, um, certainly there's plenty to do. And I'm not pointing the finger at any particular person or thing or situation. But what I am saying is let's never just sit back and get so busy with our lives that we just don't care or think about the work of God in our generation. God, how do you want to build up the church and extend the kingdom and use us? Like, we want to be a part of this because what's never going to die is the church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. So this is a call to kind of like recommit ourselves to restart. Okay, like I'm in full-time ministry in whatever sphere of life I'm in. How can I use my gifts and talents and time to build the church and build the kingdom? So before we move on to the last point, I just want to stop and ask a question. Who do we identify with in this passage? You do this when you read the Bible? Who do I identify with? Should I identify with David in 1 Samuel 17? 
okay, Lord, um, let me get some stones, and where's my sling? Should I identify with the people? When you, when you work to a- apply God's word to your life, you kind of have to figure out who you're supposed to identify with. When you read the Gospels, are you supposed to identify with Jesus or the Pharisees or the disciples? Maybe all of the above in different ways. Okay, we won't get into that totally. You can go to one of the you know, New Testament survey class to learn about good hermeneutics. But Nehemiah, yes, there are spiritual leadership lessons here. Absolutely. But there's also ways in which Nehemiah is, the book as a whole is kind of disappointing. He worked for 12 years. He goes back, he come, goes away, comes back, and things are a mess. Kind of like the kings in Israel, right? Davidic promise, Davidic covenant, you know, oh, so hopeful. And then the kings were so disappointing. Leaves you longing for a better king. Nehemiah leaves us longing for a better leader. So, who do we identify with? Well, I think the people, we might be first inclined to just to identify with Nehemiah, but let's identify with the people. And we are left longing for a better leader, better days. Yes, the good hand of God was on Nehemiah, But praise God that the good hand of God was on his son. Revelation 1.17, Fear not, I am the first and the last and living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. So the logic of the work of the gospel of the kingdom is the battle is won, so fight in the strength of your champion. Or the Lord has done the work, so work, so get to work. (laughs) Right? We do it in the strength that he supplies, in what he has done for us. So James Hamilton writes this, if you're a Christian, let me invite you to consider the derision God's enemies heap on the broken down walls and fire burn gates of the lives of God's people today. Do they know we are Christians by our love? How many people in Newcastle County in the last 10 years, I don't know, God knows, have said those Christians are no different than anybody else or they're hypocrites or I don't want to go to church because it's just full of hypocrites. If if the situation is going to be different in 10 years for those conversations that take place, It's got to start with us right now. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if we don't live transparent, authentic lives following Jesus and getting to work, then we're just going to give more fodder to the unbelievers to just dismiss the claims of Christ. Right? Are you tracking with me? Yes? So, do they know we are Christians by our love? That's our work. Let's get to work. Do they see the gospel in our marriages? Do they see us... In us, the love than which there is none greater are being willing to lay down our lives for our friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ, come let us rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. So our work is even better work than the work Nehemiah was called to. Our resources are even better resources than the resources Nehemiah had at his disposal. Brett McCracken writes this, when the, Lord's found, when the world's foundations are crumbling, run to the church whose one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Will the church disappoint you? Yes. You will have wounds and scars, we all do. This side of heaven, the bride of Christ will always be blemished. Yet Christ is sanctifying her and one day she will be spotless and radiant. Never forget, Christian, that the church will outlast the universe, as C.S. Lewis put it. And then he writes, this is C.S. Lewis, there will come a time when every culture, every institution, every nation, the human race, all biological life is extinct and every one of us in the church is still alive. Immortality is promised to us, not to these generalities. It was not for societies or states that Christ died, but for men. So our hope is not in us. It's in the one who promised to build his church. And in his sovereign hands, he holds every heart every power, every movement of history, everything. He's the one at work, and he's the one that can, like, feed a multitude with a Lunchable. So, like, do you think he could use us? Yes. 
even in the face of threats, which that's where it ends, verses 19 and 20, there's always going to be the enemies of God. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? So let's wrap this up, and we're going to sing a couple songs to close. So this is a call to do God's work in God's way, in God's strength, for God's glory, and God's good for our brothers and sisters and for our neighbors and the nations. So it's going to be subversive. It's going to be a threat to the kingdom of this world. We should expect opposition. Look at verses 19 and 20. No surprise. Because the enemies of God are really just an extension of the primal plan of the devil because he wants to tear down the work of God. But as the old hymn says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven and earth be one. So Jesus Christ is our greater Nehemiah. He's promised to build his church. So Bethel, let us rise up and build. Let's strengthen our hands for the good work. Let's be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. So in response, let's sing, Lord, take my life. Take my life and let it be. The musicians can come on up. We're going to sing, take my life, and then we're also going to sing, God is for us. So Lord, please, would you encourage us? Would you... Help us know that your good hand is on us as your people. So may we have a heart to get to work, empowered by the wonder and the goodness and the grace of your good work through Christ. In his name we pray, amen.